This is Verve, the style podcast, your only source for everything fashion on the internet. We're your hosts. I'm Katie Gassman. And I'm Anna Grace Averett. With a combined 10 years of experience in e-commerce fashion, from buying and styling to visual merchandising and content creation, Katie and I know firsthand how the internet is reshaping the fashion industry. We sit down with your favorite creators and the next wave of innovators to discuss how they're pushing fashion forward and break down five of their favorite fits. On our solo episodes, we get into the latest fashion news, runway shows, internet trends, pop culture. It's basically like going to happy hour with your fashion besties. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode and follow along on TikTok and Instagram to see what we're wearing. I'm at Katie Gassman, two S's, two N's. And I'm at Anna Grace Averett. That's A, V as in Valentino, E-R-E-T-T. So sit back with your mandatory three beverages and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Verve. This week, we have a very exciting guest on. We have Ethan Song. He was a co-founder of Frank and Oak, which reshaped the fashion industry by making it a more personal shopping experience, more sustainable. And they really started to take the men's tech fashion by storm, which is a very niche segment of fashion that we get into in the episode. But Ethan was one of the early founders in catering directly to that consumer. Yeah. And Ethan took that business and scaled it up and really turned himself kind of into a fashion guy. We were like not really sure because what he does now is crypto. Well, Web3, we get into that. He really makes that an approachable topic for us. And as girls who love fashion, love to be on the cutting edge of things, technology is a world that we're not as plugged into, but you'd be surprised by how these worlds overlap. And we get into that and talk about how um, Web 3, Web 2, Web 2.5 that he talks about, and all of that will make sense later in the episode, but how that can directly impact you, me, and everyone who shops, basically. Yeah, so at Ethan's company, Rare Circles, they are approaching brands to help them create deeper community bonds. So offering their customer base with special product drops, um, special invite invitations. So they're using this technology in a way that seems really approachable because as Katie was saying, we literally all think that like crypto, blockchain, NFTs, like the way that Ethan explains it is that those are all like very separate things that we're all lumping into this one idea. And that's why it gets so overwhelming. So we break some of mm-hmm. it down. You're going to have a better knowledge to talk to this with your crypto boyfriend after not about crypto, but the other sides of web 3.0, you're going to have a good grasp on. Yeah. You're really going to be able to teach him something about that. And then, you know, you're about to take over the world. So with that, Make sure you have your three beverages so you can sit back, relax, and learn something new today. How did you decide to start your own fashion brand? Where did the idea for Frank and Oat come from? Yeah, it's interesting because I I never thought that I would start my own fashion brand. Um, So it it definitely wasn't, you know, one of those like lifelong dreams. Uh, The interesting part is that I was always into like lifestyle brands uh, and sort of consumer brands. And around 2010 and 2011, uh, which is a long time ago now, I was actually working on a software company, like a software startup uh, in the commerce space. And the idea of that startup was the idea of like, ma- like mass personalization. So how do we personalize the products? How do we personalize the experience? 
And the interesting part is we couldn't really find any customers. And after doing that for a year, uh, we decided it was time to actually, you know, change our product because we weren't going to make it if we had stuck to it. And that's where the insight came around the fact that, like, maybe people are not doing commerce right, that maybe personalization can be a big component. And the interesting thing with Frank and Oak is, like, today, most people look at the product. But when it first started, what really gave it its first um you know, momentum and as a brand, it was actually the experience. And when we first started, it was very simple. It was the idea of like helping men uh, dress better with a combination of like style advice and simple uh, classic clothing. And so that was like the initial uh, idea behind Frank and Oak. The company was started uh, on February 14th, 2012. Um, and it was definitely part of this sort of like new D2C movement. There was a lot of energy in the e commerce space. And, you know, it was around the same time that. Brands like Warby Parker or Glossier and, and some of those other brands were started. And so I think that what really made it work was one, a differentiation on experience, but also we were targeting the sort of like millennial guy that at the time was, you know, probably in their mid to late twenties and uh, they wanted brands that were theirs. And so that was definitely a big part uh, of our early success. There's a, a big, big underserved market. Yeah. I was just about to say there's a huge market in tech men and their look like not to like stereotype <laughs> about it but it's definitely like you know there's a there is a look the patagonia and the Allbirds, and wanting to be comfortable but still look clean and put together and professional enough for the workplace but you work long hours so then maybe you're going on a date right after work you're not leaving to go home and change and finding a brand that's able to cater to that customer i feel like came directly out of silicon valley I mean, I mean, it came from Silicon Valley, but we used to always say like, like back in the nineties, even early two thousands, you know, when everyone wore a gap, mm. uh, it was, it was more of a business casual attire and, and mm. I'm obviously focused on men right now. We can talk about women after, but on, on the men's side was this sort of business casual khakis with maybe like a blue shirt and maybe a sports jacket, uh, a kind of classic preppy look. And I think a few things happened. One, I think the world plays got a lot more casual and I think tech yeah. startups are definitely part of that, but like generally mm. People end up in more creative jobs. And, and what I found is that to a certain extent, it was easier for men before because now they actually have to have a sense of style. They have mm. to figure out, you know, what works for them. And we found that there was huge opportunity in helping them do that uh, with things that were maybe a little bit trendier and then your kind of basic, uh, you know, uh, khakis and shirt. But it wasn't so intimidating that it would be difficult for you to pull off and you know, menswear is very different uh, than women's wear. Obviously, Frank and Oki yeah. went into women's. So I, I had that experience. But I think, you know, men's tend to be a, a lot less trend-driven, a lot more kind of utilitarian and mm -hmm. very dependent on the workplace. And so I think that it's interesting because I don't think that menswear is ever solved. <laughs> right. It's this weird thing where it always feels like, you know, guys need more help or there are some cool brands, but it feels like there could be more options at the same time. Um, of course, you know, I think in the last 10 years, streetwear um, became a big part of menswear. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that definitely changed uh, the way people that dress. But even now, now that we're in like 2023, I think we're, we're getting almost into a new phase where are we at the tail end of streetwear? I don't know. Mm. Uh, are we at the start of something else? I don't know. But definitely there's something going on. No, absolutely. Um, 
there's more um, input, I think, than ever before, too. Like the way that everyone is consuming fashion is so fast and immediately available on your phone versus having to go to a magazine or imitate what your friends are wearing or seeing what people are wearing at work, too. And I'm sure that that is just as apparent for men as it is for women. Yeah, I definitely think that, you know, men obviously, you know, look at social media as well. And, you know, there, there's even, even if you don't want to see, you see, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think yeah. in the past, like you really only saw your workplace and, you know, obviously some men, you know, subscribe to fashion magazines like GQ and Esquire, but that's a very small segment of men. Mm-hmm. And, but I think now, you know, if you're into sports, you can see obviously like basketball, you know, stars like LeBron or Steph, like they're wearing they have cool the coolest style. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a runway, you know, when they're walking up. And so mm-hmm. like, you definitely see that. And, you know, you obviously see other places. I think the, I do think that there is a such like the Silicon Valley style. I tend to agree with you, Katie, that I think it became a thing because, you know, ultimately people aspire to people that are successful. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think in the last like 10 or 15 years, a lot of the startup founders were the ones that were kind of, you know, making the headlines, making, you know, more money and therefore being more successful. And so, whereas 20 years ago, maybe it was more like a banker, you know, uh, right. like a, a suit wearing guy. And so I, that's definitely shifted. Um, and I, and I've, but I've also seen the startup kind of community. Obviously I come from that community. It did get more refined, you know, like if like 20 years ago uh, or even 10 years ago, it was definitely that sort of like, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, Harvard look, which is like, yeah. like hoodie and like flip flops or, or whatever that was. And I think the, actually it's interesting because when we launched, I think the article is still out there, but one of the articles that gave us a lot of our initial momentum um, was an article where uh, the writer basically said like, you know, if there was a place where Mark Zuckerberg would shop, this would be it. And, <laughs> but what's interesting is Mark, I think he's 37 and 38. Obviously I don't know him, but like he is part of that generation too. Right. Yeah. So I, th- I think, I think, uh, that, that was definitely part of what created it. But what was interesting is when you run a fashion brand, you know, like as the brand ages, as your customer base ages, you also have to reinvent yourself because you always have to find a way to still connect with someone who is like straight out of school and, and, and stay relevant to a certain extent. So as the company grew and you moved from founder into having to specialize in some area, what parts of the company did you oversee? What was your main skill of expertise? Yeah, it's really interesting because I, before starting Frank and Oak, I had never worked in a fashion brand or company, right? So really, I didn't know uh, what those areas uh, existed. Um, I, I think that where I've done well uh, throughout my career was really around this idea of product market fit. And so typically, I, I end up leading like everything from product to marketing. Mm-hmm. And at Frank and Oak, that was a combination of marketing obviously but also like product which was you know the physical goods right the the shirts and the t-shirts that stuff that you sell but also product in terms of like the customer experience um so those were the three areas that i've always focused on my partner isham at the time who was a coo he always focused more on like infrastructure and operations so like more like tech and like you know logistics and supply chain so he managed those things and it was a really good sort of like combination uh of talent um, but that said, you know, I, I would say that I've I have realized very quickly that, you know, at, at first I thought I was like a film director, okay, as like the founder of like a fashion brand. So like, you know, you have to shape the story, you have to kind of get the right actors in place. And I actually realized I'm not the director, I'm actually more like the producer. And so mm. I realized that really getting the right leaders in place mm. was gonna was gonna drive success. And so I've actually over time stepped out of 
you know, I used to be more into design reviews and then like some of the things like that. And I realized actually you might want to do that job, but is that really the place for you to make the decision at this mm. point in time and, and being kind of honest with yourself that maybe you're not adding the value you think you're adding. And so I've, I've kind of realized that uh, over time. Um, or like valuing your time differently and that maybe that's not the best use of your time and your efforts would be better, you know, in a more macro lens focusing on other problems versus yeah, getting swept I, I, up I in those what, designs. For sure. But I also think it's like, I don't know if it's an ego thing or just like a, uh, like there's good and bad, but I think when you start a brand, especially with a product people consume, like you feel like if they don't like their product, it hurts you personally. And so yeah. you almost want to be there, like like every single decision you want to be there. Um, and not being there, almost you feel like you're not really doing your job fully, but then you realize that actually you might be doing a detriment to the process by being there. And so I think you kind of realize that you have to have a bigger you know, picture view on, on the whole brand and on the situation. And, you know, I, I'll give you an example, like when we introduced women, so the, the Frank and Oak brand for the first five years was only in the men's business and then women's was added. And now today women's uh, is a bigger part of the business than the men's business. It's definitely changed a lot. Wow. And when we added women, like it was very, there was a lot of discussions as to how to do it, right? It's a very tricky thing to do. Um, and, you know, obviously like the, the, the best thing that we did is like, let's get a bunch of women together. Let's hiring team that's, you know, understands the female customer. Let's do like some, some discussion groups. Let's, let's go from the community we already have. And so from that perspective, I realized that my job there wasn't to make the decisions, but, but more so to just set the right context so that mm -hmm. the right decisions can be made. One of the really influential decisions that you made early on was to make sustainability a pillar of the brand. So tell us how you got to a place where you were able to integrate that so deeply. I mean, companies are still struggling to do that now. It's the hottest, newest thing. Everyone is scrambling to make sure that they've got sustainable product, that they're marketing it the yeah. right way. And 10 years ago, 11 years ago, that wasn't the case. So what drove you to make that decision and... How did that um, impact some of the decisions that you guys were making? Yeah, it's it's, it's very interesting. Uh, I would say you know it's 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 really a team kind of decision and team effort. Um, you know, I think having grown up in Canada and also spent you know I, I went to school in Vancouver. Like those were areas that were a lot more like you know environmentally conscious. I think than mm -hmm. other places in the world, and so it didn't seem as new to us. I would say mm -hmm. to a certain extent, and so I, I do want to kind of like. I can't take the credit for it when you're in an environment, you know, that, that has like embraced uh, those values. But beyond that, I think because we made simpler clothes, more modern and classic mm. clothing, like right away, like for us, we really focus on the quality of the material and the quality of the manufacturing. And the moment you go in that direction, well, I think understanding like the, the ingredients um, and even the social aspect of like where, who's making the clothes became important to us. And I think, yeah, you know, it's definitely part of the sort of millennial. I mean, obviously millennials now are, are tend to be older than, than Gen Z, but uh, at the time, especially, I think it was definitely part of the ethos. Like, can we do things better, right? Can mm -hmm. we do things better? Um, and what's interesting is that over the last 10, 10 years, I've seen both happen, right? I've seen like fast fashion get even crazier, even yeah. cheaper, yes. even faster. Yeah. And I've also seen the other path, which is, you know, consume less, consume better and, and you know, be more responsible. So very polar. Both have kind of coexisted, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's not one world. I think there's multiple worlds. But I would say that the challenge with 
you know, sustainable clothing in general is that you depend on a global supply chain. Right. Uh, and so, like, you, it's very hard to control, you know, everything. Like, even this idea of, like, farm-to-table that you see in, like, restaurants or, like, premium restaurants, it's very hard to do that uh, as someone that creates products uh, or in the clothing business for a few reasons. One, you know, apparel tends to be trendy, right? There are fashion trends, which means you have to change your product year over year. Uh, which means you have to often change suppliers you over you. Oh, yeah. And so it is very difficult. The The second thing is because there's global manufacturing, you know, right away, that that pollutes. No matter how, how you look at it, it pollutes. Right. Uh, and so it, it's definitely not easy. I think it's a challenging thing. I, I'm, I've always been, you know, Frank Canoke is part of B Corp. And, like, we've always been supporters of, like, other people doing it as well. Like, you know, I think there, there is criticism of, let's say, you know, H&M or other companies like that getting into the space. I think that if you truly believe in making a change in the environment, you would want the big companies to get into the space because otherwise you're not going to make a change, right, for, for everyone. And so, you know, we, we've embraced that, but definitely I think we were early on, especially in terms of using recycled material. We're early on also in, like, taking back, you know, like uh, the idea of circularity, so taking back clothing that have already been worn and transforming that and recycling those. And so there's a few things that we've done uh, early on, but I would say, you know, similarly to Patagonia, while how they've been a leader in the space, it was almost like a natural fit for our brand mm. uh, where I think that for some other brands, it may not be as much of a natural fit. So I, I think that, you know, the idea of sustainability is a lot more anchored now. I think uh, it's definitely not solved. It, it will never be solved, right? It's one of those things where right. you always have to work harder and you always have to like, you know, think through what you're doing and like there's trade-offs also, you know, so like give you an example, like, you know, you know, vegan is, is an interesting topic where, you know, is leather some leather something people should do? But what about synthetics, which are based on petroleum? So it's not a simple mm-hmm. answer to some of these decisions. And I think ultimately, different brands will make different decisions. And I think consumers will choose the ones that most align with their values. And I think that's that to- that's totally fair as well to have that option out there. Sustainability and men's fashion, the two things that are just never quite solved, always evolving. <laughs> so eventually you grow Frank and Oak into you know, a big company adding women's under there and you decide to sell the brand. Walk us through what that process was like for you as a business owner and also as an entrepreneur who I'm sure invested a lot of their life and time and energy into a company. What is it like to make the decision to sell that, to move on and to start a new company? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think I think the, the it's not like a one moment decision. Uh, I I feel like there's a few things about that. I think it's definitely a personal, um, you know, process. Uh, you know, definitely like the first like five or six years at the company. You know, I was younger also at that time, and like I felt like like a, I think a lot of founders, right, where like you are the company, and the company is you, and mm-hmm, so your right. your inner kind of like identity is tied to the success of the company and i've like absolutely enjoyed those days like i'm i'm, I'm not yeah. saying that in a negative way i think that it was like you know it's incredible and like the energy and like the community that we were able to build uh but over time like you know obviously the a, a consumer business is very like you know operations based i know we got to like over you know 250 employees we also start opening like stores and like you know i had like 30 stores uh, and so it becomes a big business and I, I just like enjoyed it less over time. And I realized that that operational part of the business wasn't something that I was interested in doing. Yeah. And so at some point I just realized I took it as, as, I took it as far as I could, but also you realize that like, you're not as essential to the brand like you said earlier because you have right. a team in place. Yeah, exactly. So, um, 
and for me personally, like I was still in my 30s. Oh, well, I'm still in my 30s now, but at that, at that point in time, I was like, hey, life is long. You can do lots of different things in life, right? Yeah. And so yeah. like, why not, why not embrace that opportunity? And so, yeah, that's basically how those decisions were made, you know, but it wasn't necessarily easy because I also had some disagreement with the board over a period of time, mm-hmm. you know, so it's always a combination of factors, but uh, I'm, I'm happy with the, with, you know, the outcome and the decision and, you know, Will there be a company where I choose never to leave? It's possible too. You know, I, I think every situation is different and, and things change over time as well. And so I just always tell founders that like, hey, it's, it's not because you started it that you have to stay the whole time. You mm-hmm. know, like it's, it's okay for you to change as well. It's okay for the conditions to change. And everyone has a different story and everyone has different motivation. It's also okay to never change your job. Like I admire that right. as well. And that's perfectly fine as well. But I think different people have different you know, journeys and different path. Um, but I don't, like, I don't really miss it, which tells me that I made the right choice. Yeah, good. <laughs> That's the best possible outcome. <laughs> well, the, the beauty with being an entrepreneur that I always tell people is that if I missed it, I would just start another brand now. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Like, oh, there you go. Right, like, you, you, like, the, like the beauty with, with, with brands or any, or any companies, you can always start another one. Right. Right, there's always, a, there's always new opportunities, there's always a new generation of shoppers, there's always like, you know, new trends that you can go after. And, and I did look into these and I know I, I am an investor in quite a few brands. I, I, I'm still kind of involved in this space. Um, but yeah, I mean, like one of the brand that I'm, I'm partnering in, it's a brand called Norda that, you know, people should check out. It's a trail running brand. Um, so like that makes sneakers uh, for running and the product is incredible. And that also has a st- really strong community aspect Anna smiles. She's like, "Oh, he's plugging some new brands here." Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a great brand, and so I think I think you, as someone who wants to create, you never stop creating. You know, you just move on to the next thing and you keep going, and uh, it come kind of part become part of your life story. Yeah. So, did you take a pause from creating after you left the business, and like some time to restore until you came up with your next business idea, or did you immediately launch into it? Um, yeah, it's interesting because like, I didn't really know because it, it is like a, a funny thing, right? In the sense that like, you go from like, you know, working basically like all day, all weekend to all of a sudden not having to go in anymore. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. at first it's almost like a little bit weird because you're like, why aren't they calling me? Don't they need me to like help them <laughs> figure these things out? And they don't call you because they're not supposed to call you. Right. So, right. uh, that, that was a little bit weird. I would say, um, I, spent a bit of time just kind of reading and you know thinking about uh what i wanted to do but very little time uh, <laughs> I, I thought it was going to take way longer um but, but like i mean my 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 girlfriend always says that it's like like i i just work like i like to work yeah like i don't have to work i work because i enjoy it and so but i didn't really jump into a project i first like I've, I've been an angel investor for like many years and so i kind of mm-hmm. increased my involvement uh, with some of the companies I'm an investor in, you know, so I did some advising and this stuff. So that was actually really fun because I was able to get involved with m- more different businesses without having to operate the business and having to be uh, kind of like testing the waters a little bit, right? Like you can dive exactly. into different businesses, you know, how they operate, different sectors. When you learn, you know, I think like you, it's not because you've been successful at somewhere for like almost ten years that you know that's applicable somewhere else. Uh, there's a lot of luck that plays into that. Every business is different. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so I, I got involved with a few like amazing businesses that are growing well today. Um, and also the other thing is, I think the challenge with being like 
the founder and the CEO of a company is that you don't really have a job description and it's yeah. not really about being the best. Like, like you could be the best at everything and be the best at nothing. But what I realized is that what's really hard, why people feel that like loneliness, right? At the top, that like kind of anxiety. And that's why a lot of people end up like kind of quitting or like, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that you have to make the final decision on things. Mm. Right? There's no people guardrails. Yeah. There's no more guardrails, right? Yeah. There's no one there to help you save. And, and that accountability is ultimately on you and you know that. Mm. Right? So you could hire the best people in the world and they would still come to you and say, what do you think about this final outcome? Because it's your company, you're the CEO. Right. Right? So, so I think that pressure is really difficult. So it was enjoyable for me to not have that pressure for a while. <laughs> um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So I, I was like mostly investing and advising for about maybe 18 months. Uh, and then I kind of decided it was time to kind of, you know, get started again. And like, I, I really enjoy like early stage uh, company building. Um, mm, it's, mm-hmm. You know, it's not something that most people enjoy, I would say, just because it's very hard. Um, you know, you never know like what's working, what's not working. But I find that that's where you can truly create something new. And, and mm-hmm. like, I feel like, you know, if you look at Frank Hinoak today, like a lot of the things were created in the first like two years. And so mm-hmm. like things don't change as much, you know, after the fact, uh, especially as it relates to brands. Like, you know, like it's funny because if you look at like, you know, like Warby Parker or Glossy or All Birds, they haven't really changed in the last 10 years. And so effectively what they did right in that first moment is still what makes it work today. Uh, now, whether that's good or not, I don't know. That's everyone's opinion, but that is the case. Right. Glossier and hasn't so, been doing too hot. <laughs> I mean, I think it's really hard to do well, like it, uh, in today's Makeup world. is like, a really you know, tough like, space big, to be in. I, I think there's this interesting thing where like a lot of people were discussing, like, will it, like, will it be possible to build billion dollar brands in this new world? And I think that it's harder because there's a lot more micro brands, influencer brands, smaller brands. And so it's not that you're competing against one large brand. Um, it's more that like you're competing against all these smaller brands that people have a strong attachment to because, you know, they know the person through social media. And so I think, I think the, the world has changed effectively. And so, yeah, I think it's, I think it's easier to start a brand today, uh, mm-hmm. but I think it's harder to scale a brand today. It's so interesting. I feel like the next wave of brands and companies and creators, it's all about community and it's all about, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on well, Anna Grace, that goes right along. Community and storytelling. That's what I was going to say. Oh yeah. And that goes right along with the thought that immediately went through my mind was you were talking about all of these smaller brands, almost like a micro D to C company, which right along the lines of like the micro influencer, the rise of this very niche community that you interact with, you have a personal relationship with. It's not just like, Oh, they marketed to me and it looks cool and I want to buy it. Yeah. And it's funny enough because I I guess that we're going to probably start talking about my web three company now, but (laughs) effectively, um, I, when I decided to start again, I was actually looking at, I look at creator, you know, economy products. I looked yeah. at like more commerce focused, you know, products. And, and I realized that, you know, if you look at, if you go like between now and the next five years, like marketing, you know, like Facebook marketing or Instagram marketing is not as efficient as it used to be. Yeah. Email doesn't work as well. And, and absolutely, like you said, 
communities, like this idea of like community-based growth, community-based brands is really the way that things are going. And most brands that do well is because they have a strong community. And so I, I kind of realized what can I build in that space to enable those communities. And that's effectively the product that we built. Uh, and we do leverage some components from Web3, but we also have some components for Web2, which is effectively like giving you the tools to supercharge uh, your community. Um, and so I, I, I absolutely believe that the way to build a product is maybe to start with a community and then build a product later versus mm -hmm. building a product and trying to attract a community. And so I definitely think that's been reversed. Yeah, 100%. Go ahead, Anna Grace. Oh, sorry. So I was going to say, 100%, you started your new company, Rare Circles. Walk us through what your Web 2 and Web 3 involvement look like. I know I'm speaking for Katie and myself that says, like, we do not know a lot about this subject. We are interested in the metaverse. We work in retail, so it's something we think about. We're consumers of the internet. We're creators on the internet. So it applies to us in a lot of facets, but I feel like it's still a mystery to so many people who could be accessing this technology and kind of being on the forefront of this next wave. So in the simplest terms, what does your new company do? And how would it affect our listeners today or a creator or a business? Yeah, I mean, our, our product effectively combines uh, elements of like social media with elements of loyalty programs. Like that's the simplest way. And it and enables you to basically engage your community at a deeper level and reward them for their engagement. So that's kind of like at a high level. Now I know visually you're like, oh, I can't, I can't see what that looks like. And, and that's because we're, we're really going to a new space. Yeah. Um, but it's effectively rethinking about like long-term customer retention, uh, you know, user loyalty, uh, and thinking about how do you reward and get your users to effectively be more loyal and be more passionate about their relationship with you. I think the the part that's confusing about the whole Web three thing. Um, I'm just commenting on your on your previous point here and kind of jumping back and forth is that I think that people like to think that it's one thing. But it's really like ten different things, mm. right? So like, I obviously, um, you know, we're talking about fashion and, and and like lifestyle stuff here, but like digital fashion and the metaverse is one thing. But like, you know, cryptocurrency is a whole other thing, and then like loyalty, you know, uh, Web three based loyalty is another thing. Collectibles, you know, like we've seen, like you know, like uh, NFTs and like digital art. That's a whole other thing, and. And I think what's confusing is that they were all kind of thrown at people's face at once during COVID. <laughs> and, yeah, everything yeah. Is, and there's like so much hype and like like lack of hype and like all these ideas are colliding. So I think what's going to happen in the next like three to five years is that they're, they're going to become like separate kind of products of their own. And then like you guys are going to try to, you're going to be able to better understand the products are relevant to you versus like kind of like a, a, a jumble of like all these different things kind of hitting you at the same time. Right. Um, but effectively, you know, the what, what we're working on is enabling you. Let's like I'm sure uh, where, like, where, where is your community right now? Is it on, on like Twitter or on Instagram? Is it on Spotify? Um, yeah. Like, TikTok. What would you do on TikTok? Exactly. Right. So those are all areas that allows you to basically distribute your content. Right. Mm -hmm. And build a community. Um, but let's say you wanted to now bring your community on a platform that you controlled and find ways to like 
you know, have a closer relationship with them oh. and reward them basically for that relationship, where would you go? So is your consumer, is your, like who you're selling your company to, is that brands or is it individuals like influencers or people who um, want to create like a super niche? But I mean, some of these influencers have 10 million, 15 million followers. So it's not really that niche compared to like a brand. So who's, who are you interacting with it in rare circles? Yeah, so I mean, that, that's why I agree with you. That, that definition, I think, between brand and creator doesn't really exist anymore. Right. Um, but we, we, t we, we tend yeah. to deal with businesses. Mm. Um, so as an example, like, so like brands, as an example, like, you know, the brand Psycho Bunny uh, mm -hmm. or Penguins Original, uh, yeah. they use our product. Uh, we also work with uh, sports uh, teams uh, and sports organizations like the Detroit Pistons, USA Basketball, mm -hmm. uh, use our product. And so... We tend to work with companies, um, but individuals can use the product as well. The only reason why we tend to work with companies is because, like, usually when you get to that point where you want to, like, it's almost like, it's not a direct comparable, but you could say that, hey, this is kind of like email marketing or CRM or things like that. And so you do have to professionalize a little bit yeah. in order to use the product. So that's kind of like where... You have a brand is, and you're trying to accelerate it. You're not early on in your business, right? Like you have a market base and you're trying to secure it. I, I would say the answer to that is not that you have a brand you want, is that you have a community. Like you yeah, can't, yeah. we don't have a product that helps you build community. And part of the reason is because those obviously exist, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram. And so we're, we have a product that helps you like retain and monetize your community. And, and I think that's, right. that's the difference there. And part of the reason why it's called Rare Circles was because you have your Rare Circle. Right. Right. That, that's, that's effectively what, what it means. So, so the brand, how does your customer interact to receive these rewards? Are they interacting on these other social channels or is it within rare circles? And then when they're participating in an event or, you know, whatever the example may be, they get rewarded with some sort of. Yeah. So, so we do offer like a, a product called portal, which is actually like a community space that people can sign up to, um, you know, some of the PFP projects that use our product, the more crypto native side of things, they offer tokens to their fans that gives them access to the community. But you can also be onboarded into the space. And the space basically combines a few different functionalities that allows us to engage, uh, get you basically on discussions, get you rewards, basically like access to exclusive merch. And so the best way to describe it is what if the future of loyalty and consumer was not about transactions, but about the individual. And that's basically the whole premise uh, behind how we're building the product. So am I interacting? I'm part of one of these circles. Are They're called circles. Uh, I mean, you, you, I guess so. Yeah, I guess yeah, so. Yeah, whatever. I like that. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm part of one of these circles. And am I interacting with you as another member of the circle? Or am I only interacting with the brand? Is the brand engaging with me? Is it an app? So it's it's both. Okay. Um, I mean, sorry, I, I'm answering your first question. Yeah. The second question. Uh, we, we don't have an app. We have a desktop and mobile version. There's no app right, okay. right now, at least. But the, the, you interact both with the brand and you can also interact with other fans of the brand. Cool, cool. 
One of the main observations that I noticed of some of the brands that you listed off that you work with are pretty male-centric brands. And that kind of makes sense, I think, for your original company. You started Frank & Oak as a company that created menswear. And I think a lot of times women specifically feel intimidated by the idea of getting into this metaverse. How would you recommend to someone who feels intimidated by this concept in a really male-dominated space to jump in dive in, don't get intimidated, hold your own in this kind of world. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, the, the, you know, unfortunately the data says it itself, right? That, yeah. You know, a lot more, a lot more men interact with blockchain based technology, uh, including like, you know, things like Bitcoin and things like that than women, um, at the moment. And so adoption on the male side is higher. Um, I think that, you know, that's part of the reason why, like whether it's intentional or not, you know, some of our customers tend to cater more to men um, because you know there's adoption of the technology, right? So, I my my, you know, because I work in fashion, you know, I I've always worked in like a lot of women centric businesses, which is interesting, and I actually think that there's massive opportunity, uh, you know, for female female founders uh, or just female fans, right? Like to get into this space because this technology is all about community. And, and it's all about building relationships. And, and, and so I think there's a lot of interesting uh, factors there. Like now, what would, I, what would I say? I think one is I do think that the space has a bad reputation and there, there's a bit of a PR challenge because of, you know, the, the, the feeling of who else is involved and, you know, like the, the scams and all this stuff. So like, I think mm-hmm. as a founder, I think you, you should think about the potential of the space and the technology and know that you can make a difference and almost like skip over all the bad news and focus mm. on what you think you can bring to the space. Yeah. But I, I'm a huge proponent of like having as much, you know, diversity and inclusion from the get go as possible into this new space. Like the, the, the ethos of the blockchain and of decentralization is the fact that effectively everyone is equal and no one should have more power or more sway over the community and the ecosystem, anyone else. And so I think that that is a, it's an opportunity that everyone needs to embrace. Um, so yeah, that, that's my thoughts. And now what's really good, you know, is that there are all these amazing groups out there that are there to like educate, promote the technology to all, you know, not, not just women, but different groups that may be underserved at the current moment. And I think those are all things that we should continue to support. So what do some of these rewards look like when you're saying a loyalty program between a store and a customer in our traditional view of the past, I mean, I don't even know, 50 years of retail, that looks like checking out at the counter, buying a product. Maybe you get a hole punched in a card and when you get 10, you get a free sandwich, something like that. So how does that apply in a virtual world? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think the, the definition of the virtual world, I think when, when you're talking about the metaverse, maybe you're thinking about a fully 3D environment. Is that what you're thinking? I feel like that's a floating idea of what it is in my head. <laughs> I don't know yeah. if that's right or wrong, but in my head, it's they're associated. Right, right? like yeah, where so you're going to buy your digital Birkin is also like, you know, up in that 3D world. <laughs> yeah. But it could also just be in your browser on your phone, right? So, like, I think, right? I think the, the it's a little more the, physically grounded than I think it is. It's more physically grounded than you think it is at the current moment. I think there's, yeah. you know, people obviously see like VR in these three worlds and think, oh, are we all gonna like wear our like our like Balenciaga and Gucci dresses and like go to galas like in the digital world and, and go see concerts? 
and I think that is far away. I mean, that's the reality. That's going to take some time, especially in this post-COVID world where people want to embrace live experiences. You know, so I think I think there's components of that, but the reality is the rewards can be both digital and physical. And so, mm-hmm. you know, a physical reward could be a unique product drop, right? Or it could be access to a, a product you didn't get before. Maybe it's a discount on something that you like to buy. Maybe you get to come to um, the opening of a new store or a holiday party. And so it's not just digital goods. It's a combination of digital and physical goods. I mean, like the 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 one thing I should say, though, is that like our company is definitely focused on this sort of like Web 2.5, which you know is bridging the, the two worlds. And so oh, I we, like we, the sound of that. I feel like that's where I am right now. I want to <laughs> hang out on Web 2.5. <laughs> so you kind of get a little bits of everything. You yeah. still want to be grounded in reality, but you do yeah. you do see the the interest in where the internet is going. And so, but the crazy thing about it is, obviously, I can't predict where we're going to be in five or ten years. No one can. But I I still remember when I started Frank and Oak. When people used to tell me that no one would buy clothes online, mm-hmm. and that because you couldn't try your clothes, it was never going to work. Right. And you know, and so like it's 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 crazy how much things can change in ten years. Um, I know. And so, I don't know how the metaverse or you know Web three or all these things are going to develop. But all I can say is that whatever happens next will definitely be consumer uh, c- community centric. It will definitely be more from the bottoms up versus the top down. Um, this idea of like making things more democratic. I mean, I mean, even looking at your show, right? Like no one. No one gave you the right to start the show. You just did it. I think that's right. what's going to happen with mo- most people going forward. If you want to, st- like, if you listen to this and you're like, hey, you know, what Ethan did 10 years ago, I can do better now. I'm going to start a men's brand. It's going to be curated. It's going to be basics, but it's going to be great. I'm sure you can do it. And that's the beauty. And I think that's great. And like, you don't have to like invest a huge amount of money to do it. And that is part of what I think technology has brought. But the one thing I should say is that I feel like a lot of people that are proponents of Web3 and crypto. There, of course, it's amazing to hear about what that future world could be. And even myself, I'm inspired by that. But I also think that when you place a future world almost too far from people's reality, there's like there's this sort of like intimidating factor where it's almost mm-hmm. like I can't really I can't I can't understand how this is possible. So I'm just gonna stay out of it. And so I actually like to talk yeah. about things in real ways. And so when I say things like, hey, through this platform, you could get access to merchandise or discounts, you know, people would be like, well, that doesn't sound that exciting. And I'm like, but it is, it's actionable today, right? Right. It's something that you can benefit today and that will enhance Mm -hmm. your experience today. And I think that's really important. And, And like understanding that, you know, all these companies that were built, they're not built in one day. And really what you got to do is you got to build a product that's useful for people today and then hopefully survive long enough to fulfill uh, the long-term mission or whatever you set yourself to do. I mean, a huge part of being an entrepreneur is being able to have a vision for something five years from now and still want to work on it in the current day and have that ability to like exist on a dream and I feel like the crypto world or the metaverse and all of these things that you're talking about that for someone who's not deeply entrenched in it feels like it's limping along like it what is happening and then one day it just happens and then it's so deeply entrenched in everybody's lives I think about like my first job in fashion I worked the stylist for a subscription box company where we send people's clothes to their house 
they try it on and they keep what they like and they return what they don't but if you had told someone in like the 70s or 80s says that's what the future of shopping looked like they would not have believed you they would right. think that you know there's theft there's all these things how would you know what i like like all of you these have things to explain that they the concept of the internet like yeah exactly yeah. that like but now you can parallel what your business is building and banking on is going to be the future and i i I think we both agree on that that you're headed in the right direction but for people who can't understand it it does seem overwhelming so i feel like you've done a pretty great job at explaining how this affects the consumer today and how that can affect businesses and communities in the future well i think the other thing is because of the internet like you can connect with a niche audience anywhere in the world right and so like The Frank and Oak brand is was a pretty is a pretty big company, but it's not a big company compared to the size of the world, right? Or even other companies. And so, what I realized also is that like you can have a million people in your audience and like a hundred million dollar business, and no one knows about you, right? Right, and right that that's the new kind of like phenomenon we're seeing. And so, what I mean by that, I guess, is I think a lot of people when they think about even crypto, but also other other areas of technology, right? They, they think, oh, everyone's going to use this. And the way I see it is like, who is everyone anyways? It doesn't have to be for everyone to use it, for it to be massive. Hmm. And mm-hmm. even today, you know, like, I don't know what's the latest stat, but, you know, like less than half of products are, are bought online. People are still buying stores. So, you know, like, you, you don't need to have everyone as a customer to have a, a very large impact uh, on the world. Right, the two things you're can still, still focused coexist. on product market fit. Yeah, I mean the market is always changing, so I think you're always focused on product market fit. That's true. That's just what you enjoy about business, so you find new ways to do that, which I, I admire. Mean, I think, yeah. yeah, because I think like some people really enjoy like the kind of like you know it's that kind of like zero to one, one to hundred. Maybe that's a startup saying, but it's like mm-hmm. some people enjoy scaling, meaning like oh I sold one, now let me see if I can go sell ten thousand. I like the exercise of getting to selling one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. it's it's uh it's hard. It's hard, you know, and uh it's harder than it seems. Um but I I find it more interesting. Um because I feel like you really create something. You know, like with brands what's amazing is that they do become like they, they do become their own person. Yeah. Right? They have fans, they have like and like they they kind of almost like have a life of their own and then like, you know, one day you'll be dead and there's a high probability that the brand that you've created is still around, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it's really interesting to see that going on. So why don't we move on into our typical outfit portion of the episode? However, given Ethan's background with Frank and Oak, we thought it would be fun to discuss some of the top items that were, I guess, bestsellers and maybe really exemplify the Frank and Oak brand and what you stood for. Yeah, it's interesting because so what happened at Frank and Oak was that when we launched a brand, the company would release one micro collection every single month and each collection maybe only had a few pieces. And so the way that the business was built was through these like monthly releases of like effectively, um, you know, like easy to wear, modern, you know, uh, easy match. And so like what I see is that the best products that are being sold today sold today are the ones that we actually created like 10 years ago. And mm. so they're basically the same product. So I thought uh, rather than talking about something that is in trend today, I would kind of talk a little bit about those products. And so the first product I wanted to cover was effectively the Jasper Oxford shirt. And the story behind that shirt, obviously at that point in time, we were just in menswear. And an interesting story about that shirt is, well, one, its name, why Jasper? 
So the funny thing is in the early days, uh, Frank and Oak, we wanted to name everything with a name because I felt that, you know, a product with a name is more important. Like, would you like to be called a person? No, you like to be called, you have a name. And so it was the same idea with the shirts. And what we would do is we had a map basically in our office and we literally just point, like point to like whatever and whatever that town or city was, was the name of it. And so in this case, uh, that's how the name for the Jasper Oxford shirt uh, came about. See, when I think of Jasper, I was thinking Twilight instantly. I thought you were going to tell me some crazy story, but I also <laughs> like the map idea. <laughs> well, my, my story is more the creation idea uh, story of how it came together. Uh, the second is the Donegal sweater. And so that's like a, kind of like a traditional Irish sweater. Mm-hmm. And the reason I wanted to talk about that is that when Frank and Oak was started, being a hipster was the coolest thing. Yes, right? And for we sure. kind of forget that, like, and that was around the time where, you know, the whole Brooklyn culture and like, you know, even totally. like indie rock was kind of back, like third wave coffee was a, a big thing. And yeah. all those things are still big things. But back then it was it was more like kind of grassroots. Uh, and so there, there was a strong return to craftsmanship and to, you know, things of how things are being made. And so, you know, I, we saw this new trend of like leather making in Brooklyn there's like Etsy, obviously. So the Donegal sweater was basically a tiny little factory that we found in Ireland uh, cool. that could make these sweaters that effectively fishermen were. And it was a huge hit. It's a $250 sweater. It's very expensive. But um, I just like how it represented at this moment where people thought that old things were cool again. Yeah. Um, so that's the second piece. And the third piece I want to talk about is the Capital Parka. And so... There was a shift in the life of Frank and Oak where it actually started shifting from heritage towards being more utilitarian, meaning like more functional driven, mm-hmm. because a lot of our customers, you know, obviously Frank and Oak is a Canadian born brand. And so a lot of our customers were in colder countries. And so the Capital Parka was basically this pretty technical parka and it was priced around, around $500. And I think, for a while, like it sold like crazy amount, and I I think that it's a, it's an amazing parka. I still have it. It's super minimal, but it's effectively the best jacket you can get for under five hundred dollars. Um, so that was another piece. Did it make you feel really happy when you put it on that you're like I helped create this and it was a symbol for that brand? You know what it is is that it makes me really happy when I see someone wearing something from ten years ago on the street. Oh yeah, that is still held up to today. That they're still I know they're still it. wearing it. Yeah, yeah. it's and, good. And sometimes I meet people like at conferences and places like that, and they actually show me. They're like, "Look, look this is actually from it." And like, you know, sometimes I talk to some VCs, and then they're like, "Oh yeah, remember I was in college when you guys launched, and like, you know, here's what I'm wearing." And like, those those are great stories because that's when you realize that like, you're actually part of their lives. Mm-hmm. You know, you actually build something that's actually part of their lives, and they're 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 proud to talk about and. Uh, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, when I see, of course, there are certain cities and certain neighborhoods where I see more, you know, I think you, this idea of finding your, your kind of like, you know, crew, uh, like your, your niche, I think you're, you definitely see it more. And so, um, yeah, absolutely. I see it all the time. And um, I also see on the street products that were created after I left. And I'm, and I'm like, oh, that's great too. You know, <laughs> that, that actually makes me feel happy too, because you always wonder like if, because it's a this funny thing, right? Because after you leave a company, you want it to do well, uh, but you're also worried that you do better, 
because yeah. like, oh, does it mean that right? it's just, <laughs> was like, i holding them back ha- yeah like everyone has these kind of feelings and and i've just become like, kind of really real about like you know everyone has insecurities too but anyways we're supposed to be talking about clothing here <laughs> um so on the women's side uh the camp collar blouse is also another piece that um once you see it you realize you, you see it everywhere um and I don't know exactly how many have been sold, but I wouldn't be surprised mm-hmm. it's in the millions. Um, it's basically like the most versatile shirt that someone can wear outside of a t-shirt. Totally. Um, I so. I just looked at a picture of this shirt and I know, I feel like I know the exact person who wears that shirt. Like it is so, it's, a, it's an iconic piece of millennial clothing, I feel. <laughs> It absolutely is. Uh, it absolutely is. And um, and the last piece, you know, because I wanted to talk about outerwear. So outerwear is actually really important to the Frank and Oak brand because, once again, you know, it, it is a Nordic brand. Like, it's not a California, you know, it's not like a surf brand. And so uh, outerwear is a big part. So it's just like Higgy uh, or Hig uh, mm. coat. Uh, and it basically has this, like, collar that kind of closes like this. It's almost like a blanket that you're wearing. Mm-hmm. Um, and once again it's a coat that started as one single silhouette and there are so many of them i see it everywhere um and uh it's a fabulous coat it was never made in 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 men and i always wish i had it myself because it's basically like wearing a fashionable sleeping bag yeah uh, okay i was just looking at the photo and i was gonna say the same thing like it's you like put a duvet cover around you or something and that looks like this coat it looks fabulous and 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 it's it's long right so like it covers your legs and even in new york city like you get those days where the breeze is just like out of control between some blocks, you know, in Midtown. And so if you're wearing that coat, you're basically like invincible. When did this coat launch? Because I feel like you guys were ahead of this word, this huggy or huggy or whatever. I can't even, you know, it's a tough word to say, but it's, it's really a little popped tough off word to and, say. Yeah. I feel like it's popped off in the last two years. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like the Swedish, I think it's Swedish, uh, yeah. maybe I'm saying it wrong, but it's basically the concept of like kind of self-care and wellness. Um, it was, yeah, it was probably uh, five, six years ago. It was kind of early yeah. on, but it was, once again, it was, it was part of our focus on sustainability. And so, mm. you know, it's kind of related, uh, but, you know, the Scandinavian countries obviously have always been ahead. And so that that's how that, but the idea, the reason why we called it that was because it's kind of like having a blanket, you know, when you want to like, when it's cold outside, you go inside, you're having your tea, watching a good movie. You got that blanket like this around you. That's what that coat's supposed to make you feel like. I'm feeling it just by looking at the coat. So it succeeded. Great. That's basically it. Those are my five items. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much, Ethan. This was an incredible conversation, both informative and fun. And, you know, people don't always associate those two words when it comes to technology and crypto and the metaverse. So thank you so much. Um, Do you want to let people just remind people um, your company, where they can find it? Yeah, if you want to learn more about what we do or what we can do for your brand, you can find us on Twitter at RareCircles or RareCircles.com. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at Mr. Ethan Song. Awesome. Thank you so much. And with that, we will talk to everybody next week. Bye. 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 
Verve is the only source for everything fashion on the internet. If you've been inspired to get dressed up for yourself this week, tag us to be featured on our Instagram at Verve Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on TikTok and Instagram at Katie Gassman and at Anna Grace Averett. Links are in the show notes. This podcast is written and produced by Katie Gassman and Anna Grace Averett. Edited by Katie Gassman. Creative direction by Anna Grace Averett. This has been a three beverage media production.